The story of Joshua, the life and times of Joshua, the series is called Courageous. If you would, take your Bibles with me again, go to the sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua. We're going to give it one more, one more lesson. We've been in this for months now, and it's been a great series. Quite frankly, it could have gone a lot longer. I, there are little bits to this of the story that we could have gone into in some depth. But today, what I wanted to do is just do a flyover. And by that, what I mean is I'm going to give you the whole story, Joshua 1 to 24. I'm going to get 10 leadership lessons out of this. This is more of a leadership piece today on how to be courageous, not just learn about courageous people, not just... I'll learn what a courageous lifestyle looks like. But for me to become courageous, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to put into motion. The Bible says, now are you happy if you just know these things? Or happy if you do them? You're blessed if you do them. You put them into practice, and the Lord blesses what you put into practice, not your good intentions. You know the difference between good intentions? I thought about doing it, and then I did it. You know the difference, right? Oh, Yeah. And so that's the way it is in the Christian life as well. And Joshua's a great reminder of that. Because we all want to go to heaven, and we don't want to just show up in heaven going, boy, I barely made it. I want to show up in heaven with some victories. How about you, right? I want to show up in heaven going, you should hear the stories. I got smoke on me from the battles and the victories that are won. You know, I, I didn't just hide and play it safe all the way through. That's the lie of Satan. Oh, now that you're headed to heaven, play it safe. Don't take any risk. no. Jesus said, be strong, be of courage. Apostle Paul writes it, be strong, be a person of courage. Don't lose heart. Don't back off. You charge, it, it, we call it in preacher talk, we call it charge hell with a squirt gun. You know, That's a pretty good picture. Some of you are writing that down like it's Bible. And if you believe that, write it down. That's okay. But it's, it's to have some level of confidence that God is in this for my good. Because I want to arrive into heaven with with some victories and some great stories of how the Lord walked with me through this. And so we're going to go through just the story and pick up 10 great principles on lessons and courage. And Joshua does that for us. And, and by the way, the number one courageous person in all human history is the one we celebrate his birth this month, the, the, the coming of Jesus. Right, he leaves the comfort and the pleasure of heaven, comes to earth knowing that not everybody's going to receive him, knowing that those closest to him will have doubts about him and maybe be hostile. You see, we think, oh, what's happening in the Middle East is new. No, it's not new. It's as old. It goes back to Jesus. It was divisive back then. There were power takeovers back in in that same piece of property. It's been a crazy maker property ever since. And the reason is because this conflict is about the spiritual nature of what's happening in our hearts and lives, and that's the center of all human history right there. So it'll always be in conflict, always will be, until the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords shows. He came first as Savior. Next time he comes, it will not be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. The next time he comes, it'll be, it'll be King. He'll be riding a white horse, holding an iron rod rule, and he will rule and reign, as the song says. So the number one courageous person in all human history is Jesus himself. But we learned some lessons from some pre-runners. And this guy, Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, Jehovah saves. This is what Joshua means. You have the name Joshua in your name? That's what it means. Jehovah saves. And, th and this is kind of a picture of what Joshua, uh, what, it kind of a precursor of who Jesus is and what he's going to do because he's going to model for us, Joshua is, what Jesus will do not for the nation but for the entire world. Joshua will take them into the promised land, he'll conquer the land, and he will say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that's the whole story right there. Well, we're ahead of ourselves. Joshua, 
if you're in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua grows up not in Israel, he grows up in Egypt. He grows up in slavery, being told what to do, being owned by other people, every kind of personal human right violation that you could think of. Joshua's probably either known about, experienced, or, or it's, it's happened somewhere close to him. He, he has just it's been a, a, a lousy kind of growing up experience in young adulthood. All he has known is slavery and oppression and depression. He lived with people who then would ultimately become whiners and doubters. Why? Because that's all they knew. But he did not allow that to rub off on him. And what we're going to see from Joshua chapter 1 is Joshua has the kind of holy confidence to follow the Lord, but the Lord says to him, I want to make sure you get the double dose because you need to be strong and have great courage because I'm going to take you into the promised land. You're going to lead the people. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the first principle, and it's the first lesson we learn is to be confident that God is up to something good. He is up to something good. I have to believe that in my life and your life. He's up to something good. So the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swear to their ancestors. He's saying, you can mark my word on this, Joshua. I'm going to do this. So your part is to be strong and courageous. You just have to follow my lead, Joshua. God knew that he would need an extra dose of confidence. And Joshua had only been around defeat his entire life for failure and whiners and doubters. And maybe that's your story too. And so you need to take to heart, Philippians chapter 1, being confident, being confident of this, that the one who started the good work in you is going to perfect it. He's going to develop it and grow it up in you, and he will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and again, chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him. I can do whatever God has called me to do through him who gives me strength. We can do this. We can do this. All I need is an ounce of courage and another ounce of faith. We're off and we're running. The Lord will do the miracles. He'll do the stuff we cannot do. We have to do what we can do. The first thing we have to do is, number one, be confident that God is up to something good in my life. There's a reason he left me here on earth. So forget about playing it safe. Forget about deciding, well, since I'm headed to heaven, I'm going to do all risk management the rest of my life. By doing that, you essentially put yourself at third string for God using you. God doesn't make heroes there. No, he wants the risk taker. Uh, number two in the lesson is this, is to be active in the pursuit of God and his word. Just to be active. So the Lord says again, chapter one, verse seven, be strong and now he says, very courageous. He's, he's upping it a little more. Have you ever had that where the medicine's working but not enough and the, and the doctor will say, you need to up that dosage. Be courageous. You need an extra dose. Very courageous. You be careful to obey the law and all of the law my servant Moses gave you. Moses had given him the Old Testament law. He says, you, you make sure you listen to this, take heart to it, and don't turn to the right or to the left of it. You see, what we find is this, is that people are in active pursuit, but not of God and not of his word. And so because of that, they run and are very active, but not very productive. You, you know what busy is. It's just, they're just spinning, but they aren't really doing anything. Um, if you've ever been doing ministry overseas, um, there is a, a kind of a backhanded compliment when people call you, oh, these are Americans. And I found out later, Americans, they have a code word, they're spinners. What they mean by that is that they're always doing something. They're not very productive, but they have to be doing something. You know, they install things, build things. We don't need. We don't even know what they're for, but we, they do stuff. Yeah. Happened on the west coast of Africa, the country of Liberia. There was a tire plant that had been there for years. The U.S. was using the rubber from those trees. Decided we wanted to thank the people in the village. 
So the Americans show up and say, we're going to thank you. We're going to give you street lights. <laughs> okay. So the, the company comes in, installs the street lights. Two weeks later, the village says, could you turn those off? Why? Because our people are outside sleeping at night. It's hot. You're keeping us awake. We can't work very well when the lights are on. We, we think we're brilliant as Americans, but we're really spinners. We aren't getting much done. We're busy, but not getting the thing accomplished. What, what Josh was saying is this. You put yourself under the tutelage of knowing what God has said and obeying what he says. And don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, don't make it say what you want it to say. Know the word. That's why we recommend to you, read the word of God every day. Have some portion of your day where you just read a portion of God's word every day. Why? Because you need the word of God in your life. You need it in your heart because all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So the person of God, the man or woman of God, is thoroughly equipped to every good work. The Old Testament put, psalmist put it this way. It's your, it's your word that I've hidden in my heart. Why? So I don't sin against you. There is an up and a down. There is a right and a wrong. And I'll be held accountable for that. And the code book is the Bible. So I need to know what the final exam's about. I have to know what the scriptures say. So be active in pursuit of God and his word because we will be accountable for what his word has said. And by the way, Americans are doubly accountable because we have it in our language, we have it in different versions, we have it electronically and in paper form, you can get it on the radio, you can get it on tape and in CD and MP3s, you can get it every kind of way you can imagine. There's no reason you can't get a piece of God's word in your head and in your heart every day. It's just a matter of taking God seriously and not, and not turning to the left, to the right, but taking it to heart straight on. Number three, in the lessons is to be a person who expects the very best. Expects the very best. As Joshua and, the, and God's people approach the promised land, it's time for the spies to go in. And you know this story because we've been over it a couple times. They send two spies in. The spies go in. They're going to check out the cities and find out how are we going to do this. But here's, here's what happens. Joshua had done this thing 40 years earlier. He was one of the initial 12 spies. Joshua and Caleb were two of the 12 and when they went in, they saw huge cities and huge walls and, and big crops. But they saw giants of guys. Everything was huge. And they come back and they say, man, God's going to give us a great piece of property. And 10 of them said, it is so huge. There's no way in the world we can do this. And they voted it down. By the way, which tells you votes don't mean a whole lot, do they? They really don't. A lot of times in the Bible when there's a vote, it usually went bad. They vote it down. So Joshua ends up struggling for 40 years, surviving with Caleb. The other 10 guys died in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land. But Joshua gets there. But he still has in his memory, I remember the last time we ran spies out. It didn't go so well. And if you could just imagine, his hands getting clammy, he's getting a little sweaty, he's breaking out, he's getting a little jumpy. Because why? I've done this before and it didn't go well. Have you ever done that before where you get to a spot where something failed and the next time you try you get a little nervous? Yeah, we don't expect the best. We expect the worst. This is probably not going to go well. And that could happen to you and to me. It could have happened with Joshua and he would have stopped. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies in from Shittim. It's the city just outside Jericho and right by the river. He says, go over, look at the land. And when he sends the spies in, guess where they go? <laughs> it's not going well. They go to a prostitute's house. Could you not find another place, please? 
is there another inn in the, in the place somewhere? Yeah. Well, we didn't want to be noticed. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we were just looking for a phone booth, really, honest. Just need to make a phone call. How could this story go any more south than this? It just isn't going to go well. And if you were nervous, thinking the worst is going to happen, that could very well be what happens. That's why you have to expect the very best. You expect great things from God, get this, and you attempt great things for God, okay? You will never attempt great things for God unless you expect great things from God. But I I love the response of the two spies. They get back, and you know what? The response is similar to 40 years earlier. The land is huge, the cities are big, well-fortified, there's great crops, there's wonderful, there's wonderful uh, herds of cattle out there. We're going to take, the, you know, this is going to be huge, it's going to be great. But verse 24, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. You see, the response of these guys is absolutely the opposite of 40 years earlier. And it's the same piece of property. But they see it and say, man, this is amazing. That We're going to take this. It is in our, we don't have it yet, but it's like it's already in our hands. We can taste the grapes off the vines. It, we're so close, Joshua. The Lord, and they're, the, they are melting because of this, because they've heard of the earlier victories that we've had. And I think their words actually become prophetic in a lot of ways. Their words become huge. They can become self-fulfilling prophecies. It happens with you and me, too. You say, I can't do this. It'll never happen. If you don't expect the very best, probably that's what's going to happen, something less than the best. And that's why you have to speak to yourself with the scriptures, the Psalms, hymns, Ephesians says, spiritual songs. Why? Because you need to hear the truth about the situation. You need to know what God is up to in this, and you need to be the person who expects the very best, because if you don't, You'll begin to anticipate the worst. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for. It's as if it's already in our hand, Hebrews says. It's the assurance of what we do not see. We don't have it yet, but we're acting as if it's already in our hand. It's a kind of holy kind of boldness and confidence that God is up to something good, and we're going to be a part of it. That's why I think it's so critical. I think, quite frankly, this is the hinge of the whole book, chapter 2, 24. Verse 24. This is the whole hinge, because if those guys had come back and said, yeah, it is a wonderful piece of property, we'll never get there. I think they would have gone right back into the desert again. I think God would have sent them off again. But it's their words of confidence in saying, we can do this, God's going to do this, we don't have the source in ourselves. And they began to speak the truth. And that's the way you begin to think about yourself as well. And That's important to hear that, because what comes out of your mouth is what you'll begin to believe. I've told you this story before, but it bears repeating. It's so appropriate. Uh, a long time ago and far away, I was an associate staff member at a church. One of my jobs was to follow up on people who were in need, and I, I went to a house one late afternoon to check in on a family that I knew was in need, and I'd been assigned to go. I went uh, I went up to the door. The screen door was shut. There was a screen storm door there. The wooden door or fiberglass, whatever it was, the solid door was open. And so I could hear what was happening in the house as I walked up the stairs. And I walked up, I knocked on the door, and a little girl comes up. And she may have been four years old. I'm not sure how old she was. And she looks at me from that screen, little metal 
area down below in the screen, storm up above. I said, is your mom your daddy home? She said, I'll go, I'll go see. And, you know, in other words, you know how that goes. It's either yes or no. You know. But, you know, does he look like he's collecting bills? Then we're not home. You know, one of those guys. So I'm, I'm waiting there. So she comes back. Little girl comes back. And I'm waiting for just an adult to come to the door. So I get down low and I say, hi, sweetie, what's your name? And she says, stupid. And you know what? That's what she'd been called. And so that's how she's going to live. And she'll live that out. And my heart sank. I mean, I just, I thought, how could you do this to a kid? And there was nothing I could do to undo that damage. But she's going to grow up with some kind of self-image. I'm not trying to say it's all about self-image, but I'm just telling you, what you call people, what comes out of your mouth, you'll begin to believe. And that's what she had been told. And that's what she was beginning to believe. So you have to be watching your own words because your own words can be either words of great faith or words of great fear and doubt and despair. And you have to choose your words carefully. And you do know, the scriptures tell you, we're accountable for our words, aren't we? Because we can lift a brother up or kick him down. So I have to expect the very best from myself. Why? Because the people around me are relying upon that. And it's that collective kind of energy where we together believe the very best about God. I believe that creates a collective kind of faith. And it was, there were moments, if you, you go back and read the Gospels, there were moments Jesus didn't do miracles. You know when he didn't do miracles? In his own hometown. Why? Because there wasn't collective faith. There was not enough people there who believed in him. And he just went, <laughs> I guess what we have is all we're going to have. So I have to expect the very best. Why? Because I have a Savior in heaven who has given me the very best and he, he gives me the very best and I'm expected to believe the best in people and in situations because it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's not name it, claim it theology. This is calling God for what God calls it. When he says, I'm going to give you this property, I'm going to give you this property. When the Lord says to you, you think these thoughts, you live in holiness, you live a life of humility, you are generous and encouraging with your life. That's the life that God blesses. And I'm speaking the truth and now I'm simply announcing it. And it's the benefit of knowing, this is why it's so important for us to be not only in the word of God, but meditating, thinking about it every day, all the time. All the time. So we be the person, be the person who expects the very best. Number four, be willing to risk what you've never done before. Quite frankly, everybody going into the promised land had moved their entire life. What do you do for a living? I knock down pen, take, uh, tent stakes and then I pull them back up. And we move. We are very nomadic people. We, we never, never settle anywhere. And after a while, this begins to play a mind game on you. Settling and owning and tending something is more than some can bear. It just is. It is so new, it's so foreign because you've never done this before. And so it, it begs us with this challenge to do something that you've never done before. Joshua chapter 3. The Jordan River is at flood stage during the harvest and yet as soon as the priests carried the ark, reached the Jordan, as soon as their feet went in the water, this has never happened before. 
the water stops flowing upstream. It piles up a great heap a distance away. And they begin to cross. And they realize this is going to be our home. Now they're happy, but they're entering a new chapter in their life they've never experienced before. This is all brand new. And always being in motion and always attempting to move. You, you know, if you, if you ruin a piece of property, that's okay because we're going to be gone in a week anyway. But now I'm going to have to fix whatever I break, whatever. I'm going to have to tend it. I'm going to have to take care of it. That's a lot of responsibility. So why does God give to us new challenges, even though we are 40, 50, 60, 70? These people are 80 years of age. Why does God give to us new challenges? It's to keep us growing, to keep us trusting, to humble us, to teach us that we don't know everything, and to develop us, and to make us what we were not before. Philippians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself having taken hold of it. This is a writer of scripture. And he says, I'm still learning and I'm still growing. He says, but this one thing that I do, I forget what's behind. I have to let go of that. And I have to strain to what is ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize to which God's called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm moving forward. I, I cannot drive my life looking in the rearview mirror. That works a little bit, but that's not the primary source of my information when I'm driving. So, brothers and sisters, I, I, I haven't made it. We will always be growing. We will always be risking to do something we've never done before. It just keeps you growing. It keeps us pliable and flexible. Even into your 70s and 80s and 90s to the next century. Number five, this lesson is to be aware that every moment could be holy and it could be historic. You know, most of life doesn't seem to be all that holy, does it? Running the vacuum, mowing a yard, you know, stuff you do at home. Um, loading the dishwasher, unloading it, making dinner, cleaning it up. Um, it doesn't seem to be that holy. And yet, when Joshua goes into the promised land, he's going to go up to his first battle. He's sent the spies. Now he's looking at himself. He runs into an angel, who I think might be Christ, quite frankly. And he, and he says to the guy, are, are you with us or are you against us? And the, and the angel says, I'm, I'm neither. I, I represent the Lord. <laughs> oh, okay then. And the angel says to him, take off your shoes, dude. This is holy ground. In other words, this battle isn't what you think it is. This is a holy war. And this is a sacred moment. And I think we have to see it. You know what happens with us? We, we have moments in our lives, but we don't realize they're holy until they're almost past, right? It's, it's when we realize this is a sacred moment. This is a moment where someone's open to spiritual things. This is a moment God is teaching me something. And I realize I, where I am is a holy moment. Uh, it's a holy moment when, when I realize the challenge and I'm out of patience or I'm out of energy and God visits me with grace. That's a holy moment. And it's historic. I'm never going to go back. I'm not going to relive that. It is huge. It's historic in the sense that it is very meaningful. It's not normal. I'm reminded of Jesus, just for two illustrations. One, uh, uh, Jesus is going, just like you and just like me, it's a Saturday, we go to a wedding, right? Go to a wedding, and uh, at this wedding, there's wine. And they run out of wine. 
So everybody's going, well, we're leaving the wedding. No sense in hanging around. He says, wait a minute. Bring your pots in here. Fill them with water. He changes it to wine. You would never forget that, would you? And anybody who didn't go to the wedding, did you go to the wedding last Saturday? No, I didn't get there. Why? Oh, you're never going to believe it. Halfway into the wedding, Jesus turned the water into wine. Oh my gosh, that would be a holy moment, but it would be a historic moment too. Can you imagine... Um, there's signs around town. Jesus is teaching on the hillside today. Show up, 2 o'clock. They all go. It's great teaching. They're always taking notes, you know. But they're getting a little hungry. Jesus said, anybody got any food? Well, no one's going to give up their food because they're all hungry, right? I'm not giving my food. It's going to stay in my pockets. But in that whole hillside, 5,000 people, all they could find was one kid with five loaves, two fish. I think there was, frankly, more food than that. I, I think I could get that much from this crowd right here. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, though, right? And, but that, we just had one kid who go, oh, yeah, I'll give it to Jesus. It's okay. And Jesus feeds the entire hillside. Now, if you missed that day, you'd say, the teaching was phenomenal. But when we went to lunch break, you're never going to believe what Jesus did. I mean, that's a historic moment, right? It happens to you and me, too. But they, they come on us on a normal day. You just went to the hillside for teaching, and you just are running your routine, and it becomes historic. So you have to view these moments as God moments. You have to be aware that the Lord is in these. He saved us and called us to a holy life. So there are going to be moments, not because of anything that good has come out of us, but because of his grace towards us. We're going to have holy moments every day where the Lord shows up and grace is the, the day. Be aware that every moment is holy. Every moment could very well be historic. You just don't know it. You just don't know it. Number six. Lesson number six. Be honest about your mistakes. Not everything that Joshua did was perfect. I love that, that he's human enough to write about his own failures. Most people can't do this. You know this, right? And if you read the papers, most people will not admit they're wrong. They'll say, oh, I was misquoted, or that was out of context. That was a long time ago. People are using my words against me. And then if a guy ever is honest and admits, oh, yeah, I, I misspoke. Could I take that back? Could I reword that? When you hear that, you can almost see in the, in the news media, you can almost see vultures circling overhead. They're going to eat the guy alive, you know, because he made a mistake, as if they had never done this. Joshua chapter 9 the people of Gibeon had heard what happened with Joshua and all the people of Israel and all, the, all these victories. So they decide they're going to have a ruse. So they're going to dress themselves with old clothes and moldy bread and worn out shoes. Everything's going to look around. Then they're going to sign a contract that says we want to be friends and so you can't kill us. And Joshua does that. He doesn't consult the Lord like he should. Now, he has to live that down, and the people are disgruntled, and the elders of the town, and they feel badly about this, but they have to go on in light of the mistakes. They just have to go on. But they admit that that wasn't the right thing. They, they live up to it, and they honor their word, and the Lord honors them because they honored their word. And this is a guy who can be honest with his mistakes, and so can you be, and so can I be. So, because if we claim that we live without sin, we're only deceiving ourselves. John writes. We're only kidding ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 
I could try to sell you a product that would be perfect for your life. But I'd be lying to myself. I could, I could try to sell you a product that will give you perfect vision. And I have as limited supply of it in the trunk of my car right now. And for $29, you can get a bottle of it and you drink this stuff every day. You're going to have perfect vision. There's only one problem with that. The guy telling you that is wearing glasses. <laughs> There's something wrong with that. And he needs to be honest enough to go, well, it's, it works mostly, but it's not perfect. You see the problem with that? And all through life, people are doing the roost with you, telling you. And then it's easy for us to catch on to that and kid ourselves. What does John say? Deceive ourselves. As if we never lie to ourselves. And, and, and you know what I'm not worried about? I'm not worried that you would lie to other people. I'm worried that you'd lie to yourself. I'm not worried that I would lie to you. I'm worried that I'd lie to myself and deceive myself. And the courageous person owns up. The courageous person says, oh, that wasn't the best decision. And then can fix it. But if you never own up to it, <laughs> you can't fix what you don't own up to. Are you in pain? No. Uh-uh. Yeah, last words he said to the doctor, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. How'd that work for you? Not so well. So, be honest with your mistakes. The courageous person will. And when you're honest with your mistakes, that's when you get in line for divine help. That's when the Lord can rebuild. And it's a wonderful thing to understand his grace all over again. Lesson number seven, be looking for God's sightings. On that day, chapter 10, verse 12, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Here's what happened, though. This was a big battle. I mean, it was so big that they were really fighting hard. And Joshua knew he needed daylight to fight this thing. And he knew if the sun went down, they'd get clobbered. They're never going to make it in the dark. They aren't that good. And so what does Joshua do? On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord, in the presence of Israel, now he's praying. Get this, this is going to be another whole sermon. He's praying, but he's praying in front of the whole crowd. And what does he pray? Oh God, make the sun stand still. He's, he's telling the Lord, I need some more time here, Lord. We're not getting it done like we thought. Can we get an extension? Now, that's pretty risky, isn't it? I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here. And there are several things that happen with me about this that I don't know how it happens, but somehow the Lord makes the sun stand still and it stays long enough, light long enough, that they end up beating the enemy. Now, I have several observations about this. One is, how in the world did that happen? Did the sun begin to rotate with the earth and stay with it at pace? Because it's far away. It would really have to move, right? Think about it. This is a science geeky moment, and I'm not Bill Nye the science guy. But I'm telling you, the only other alternative is for the Lord to stop the earth from rotating. And if that happened, I'm just thinking we'd all fall down because we're all, we're all moving, right? And none of us are tethered that I can see. So I'm thinking if he stops the earth, oh, I'd wake up in Kansas or somewhere. I don't know where you would be, but I just look at my weight distribution, my height, weight, and I, I'd probably land in Iowa at least. But anyway, because it's a, it's a big fall, isn't it? I mean, it's thinking, it's rotating. Some of you are going, where is this going? I don't know either. <laughs> All I know is this is a miracle. 
if the sun flew ahead and stayed up and kept daylight, or if the Lord actually slowed the earth down. I, I don't know, but when we get to heaven, ask. It's a wonderful miracle. But what you want to know is that that day, Israel went home that night and had a battle, and they said, Man, that battle, it seemed like it lasted for two days. I got news for you, it did. It's Wednesday. You went out there on Monday. It, it lasted two, oh yeah, it lasted two days. It lasted two days. And the, other, and the enemy, they said, we could have beat him if the sun had ever gone down, but it never would go down. Think about them if you're the enemy. The point to this is, is to realize there are God sightings all the time. And there are times you're going to call to the Lord, I need a miracle. I, just, I need the divine to show up because I don't have what it takes. And the Lord says, I'll, sure, I'll do that. I can do that. I am all-powerful. Therefore, I can do that. And you know what the greatest miracle might be? It might be Romans chapter 12. Next to your salvation, coming to Christ in faith. The very next miracle that would be amazing would be the transformation of your mind that would be renewed so you would begin to think differently about God and about yourself. And then you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will really is. His good, his pleasing, his perfect will. That would be a huge miracle. Look for the God sightings. And, and when you see your mind changing, that's God at work. That's God at work. Lesson number eight. Be quick to give away the blessing. Part of our nature, part of our nature is to gather, collect, even if we don't need it. Collect it, hoard it, whatever. We just collect it. Joshua does just the opposite. He knows he has enough land. He knows he has more than enough. He knows it's enough for his lifetime. He could be conquering land his entire lifetime and never get it all done. And he knows that there's, he, he knows what most people forget, and that's that God is a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. You have to get that in your head, because we think that, oh, God only has so many blessings. That's not true. Oh, if he blesses them, he'll not have enough blessing for me. That's just selfishness speaking, scarcity speaking. And so what Joshua does is he gives part of the blessing to a longtime friend. He doesn't give it to just anybody. This is important to get. He doesn't give it to just anybody. He gives it to a long-term friend who he's known for at least 40 years, but probably more like 60 years. The guy's name is Caleb. Caleb is probably 80 or 85 years of age at this point. It's another great character study for another day. Caleb is a wonderful guy in the scriptures and a wonderful name to, uh, to have because he, he embodies so much great faith and gusto and energy. He's a wonderful man. Caleb approaches Joshua and says, hey, I'd like the mountain country. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. The people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord says to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. He says, you know. So he says, now give me the hill country. I, I want the hills. I don't want the plains. I don't want the easy stuff. This is an 80-year-old guy talking, 85-year-old guy. He's saying, give me the hard sections. Joshua, you can have the easy stuff. I'll take the tough region. And, and so Joshua gives a faithful friend a piece of the blessing. Gives him, and they, I don't know that they ever saw each other ever again. And this is not a statement by the way, of giving away the blessing and letting someone else be blessed. This is not a statement of justice. This is a statement of God's provision. 
Because even when it's tough and even when it's hard going, we are people of the blessing. We traffic in the blessing. Hope you get this. Even when you are uh, dealt a hand of evil or insults, you don't pass the insult back or the evil back. On the contrary, Peter writes, we repay evil with blessing because you were called to, to inherit a blessing because you will overcome that evil with good. You have only so much room in your life for so much blessing, so you could give it, not just give it away to just anybody, but give it away to trusted people who will know it's a trust from God as being a blessing. We sung it here, and it's been a, a classic for more than 100 years. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We praise God because that's where the blessings come from. Courageous people can bless others because they know their source of blessing is God himself. So it's not going to run out. We think, because we always think in terms of limits for us. We could run out, so we're always saving, we're always gathering. But the Lord goes, oh no, I just go out to the truck and get some more. It's just that simple for him. I'll just bless you more. And you cannot outbless the Lord, especially when you're a good steward of what he blesses you with. So be quick to give away the blessing. That's what courageous people do. And number nine, courageous people are to be balanced with justice and mercy. And this is a really tough one because now they're settling the land. They want some system of justice, but they want that justice to be to have a, a measure of mercy to it because if they don't, they know they could become really rigid, cold, calculated, and retaliatory. They're not careful. And so Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate cities, Joshua 20, verse 1, cities of refuge. And he said, I, I instructed Moses how to do this, so just look it up. You'll figure it out. And they, sure enough, they do. They establish three and then six cities. So no one's too far away. So when there's an accidental death, there's a homicide, something happens... The, the, the people who survive can run to a city of refuge and they can at least wait there until court comes and a judgment can be made because this isn't avoiding justice. It isn't enabling injustice. It, it isn't a system of postponing justice. It's an issue of making sure that justice has due time and that justice has due process. And the ones who come down real hard on that justice side, I worry that they don't understand mercy or that they're covering of their own injustice in their own lives, or that they themselves are unjust. And those who side always to the side of mercy don't understand the price that was lost in the justice. And that's why you need the system in place. And so the Lord gives to them this, this system of a city of refuge. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you know that all wrongdoers inherit the kingdom? That's where we all are. Because it's about the moment you think, oh, I could be critical with this, and we just need to come down hard. Well, yeah, we need to be hard on criminals, that's for sure. But maybe it wasn't criminal. Maybe it was accidental. And you'll never know that if you don't allow the parties to speak. And by the way, we've all done wrong. First Corinthians 6. He says, no one inherits the kingdom of God. It's unjust. And then he lists. It's, it's just a list of sins. And he says in verse 12, and that's what some of you were. The grammar is very clear. Past tense, were. Not are. Present tense, were. Past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, so don't ever forget. 
Don't forget, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, not because of something good you did, but because of what Jesus did and by the Spirit of our God. The courageous man or woman will know the balance of justice and mercy, and they'll know to, to make sure that we listen and that we pay attention, that we give people opportunity. And, and the, the courageous person, even though the peer pressure could go the other way, would be to follow the, the process. And would be to know, too, that all of us are ultimately guilty. And all of us need just a moment of mercy and an opportunity to start fresh and clean. The courageous person knows, too, that there has to be a turning point to start this kind of new life because if you don't do that, you'll persist in the injustice. And so it has to be balanced, justice and mercy. You have to fight for that balance, and a courageous person will. Finally, number 10, be true to your ultimate goal, which, by the way, is to honor God. It was never about the property to begin with. It's always been about God himself. And here's what happened. As they got into the property, the people came in, but they brought with them a bunch of false gods that they'd picked up along the trail. And then they had false gods from their parents' lineage. And then they moved into a region, and some of the people that were left in the region had false gods and witchcraft and sorcery and all kinds of mishmash of religions. And it was starting to blend with this fear of God that is the God of the Bible. And so they were getting this mix. And Joshua said, that's not going to work. It's just not. So he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. If you, if you don't want to serve the Lord, okay. But then choose, just make up your mind. The gods of your ancestors, way past, serve beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the Amorites, the guys that we were traveling with earlier and we conquered, or the... Or the gods from the land in which you're living now. You see how it is? It's, it can be so confusing, can it? He says, I, I, it is so complex and so polluted, it's hard to pull it apart. And when you do, he says, I, I just know this. As for me and my household, what I can control, we're going to serve the Lord. We are going to serve the Lord. So you have to be true to the ultimate goal, which is to honor the Lord with your life. And not just fear him, not just believe him, but serve him. Corinthians restates this almost just succinctly, so succinctly. No matter what you do, even if it's eating or drinking, something that simple, something you do every day of your life, you do everything to the glory of God. This is ultimately to the glory of the one who made us. The call to courageous living is, is really launched in the life of Joshua. We see it ultimately in the life of Jesus, but Jesus expects it of you and me. And that's where I want to close. Hundreds of years later, Jesus would show up on earth and he would tell his followers, they'd go for a ride in a boat, they'd get to the other side, and he'd let the crowd go. And they had all these discussions, you could just imagine, lots of talk, lots of teaching. And he stopped them, he goes, you guys aren't getting it, here's the big deal. You need to be guys of courage. And immediately he just says, just take courage, guys. Don't be afraid. That's, and that's my word to you. Be a person of courage, not a person of fear. When the early church was started, it was Peter and John who realized, when the people saw them and heard them speak, they realized, these guys are unschooled. They're unlearned guys, and yet they're awesome when they speak. What is it about them? 
they saw their courage. That's what they knew about them. That became almost the personality trait of who they are. They are courageous guys. Again, chapter 23 of the book of Acts. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Not take a lesson, not think about this, not you might want to consider. No, take courage. In other words, stand strong. You testified for me in Jerusalem. You're going to do it again in Rome. Just take courage. And so it is no surprise to us when the church finally does get established. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, here it is. Final verses of the, cha- of the book. And what is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth? It's to be on your guard. It's to stand firm in the faith. And to be courageous. And to be strong. Not to back off. Because that's how you'll get wounded. That's how you'll get, that's how you'll get taken down in the spiritual battle. Therefore, courageous people, we want to be people who will be confident that God is up to something good in my life, that we will be active in the pursuit of God and his word, that we'll be people, uh, uh, we'll be the people who expect the very best of other people, and we'll be willing to risk what we've never done before, we'll be aware that every moment could be holy and historic, we'll be honest about our mistakes, and we'll be looking for God's sightings, all while we will be quick to give away the blessing, and we will be balanced in justice and mercy, and we will never, ever give up on the ultimate goal. We will be people who will be true to the ultimate goal, which is to honor God. Now, that's never going to happen. Never going to happen in and of your own. And you're going to learn the lesson, and you're going to say, I just need to learn more. I just need to study it some more. And I'm telling you, no, you don't. You just need to do it. Just need to do it. You just need to do it. When you were a kid, somewhere in your life, sometime in your life, somebody sat you up on a bicycle, right? And you sat there and went, oh, I can't do this, right? And maybe the first bike you were on was a tricycle, and uh, you weren't sure about what you could tip that over, you know? And then eventually you got to a bicycle, two wheels, but they added training wheels, and you remember the first time you're on a bicycle and you're thinking, oh, it's getting away from me. And then you, you finally get to, now you can ride a bike, but only straight. Right? Remember this? Then I can ride a bike, but I can't stop. Someone has to run and catch me or I drive into a bush. Just that simple. And then eventually what happens is you get the feel of that and you're no longer scared of it. In fact, you kind of enjoy it. In fact, later another year later or so, you get on a bike and you love pedaling as hard as you can and sitting up and when your mom's not looking, you take your arms off the handlebars, you just ride and you feel the, the breeze in your face and you're free. You're just riding up till you meet the pavement. But you're just riding, right? And it's a wonderful sense because you've mastered that. But you didn't do it by reading a book, watching a TV show. You, got, you did it by getting on the bike. And I want you to get on the bike called Courage. And it will feel awkward at first. You'll feel like you're tipping over. And then you'll think, I can only go straight, but I can't turn. No. You stay on the bike, keep riding it. And you know what? You'll be like the guys in the book of Acts who are described as guys of great courage. They'll become your personality. And when that happens, then you'll instill courage in people around you. And SPC will be known as a church 
that's courageous. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. So our Father in heaven, that's what we pray for, that we be people of great courage, who trust Jesus, who believe you for the very best, don't take a whole lot of stock in ourselves, don't take ourselves so seriously, but take you seriously. And, and Lord, may we live to the ultimate goal. As for me and my house, we're going to courageously live for the Lord. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. And the church says, amen. Amen.